0: This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker, and tonight I'm joined by Helena, aka No Justice MTG, here on YouTube. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thank you for having me. A little bit cold. It's
2: very cold at the moment, but slowly warming up.
1: Slowly warming up. Well, then it'll get cold again, I think that's how it works. Um, tonight we have something slightly different for you. We are going back to Westminster. Um, Boris Johnson has been given evidence to the COVID inquiry. For most of the show, though, we will be talking about the Gaza war that will be um, in the second two thirds. Straight into that first story. The COVID inquiry has been running since June, and for the first time, it has now heard from the Prime minister who oversaw the entire crisis. Boris Johnson. The inquiry started with an apology and a protest. Can I just say how glad I am to be at this
3: uh, inquiry and uh, how sorry I am for the, the pain and the loss and the suffering
4: sit down. of please, the please stop.
3: Covid Don't victims. Stop.
4: Please sit down. Please sit down or I'm afraid you'll have to leave the hearing room. I'm sorry, if you don't sit down, I'm going to ask the ushers to get you to leave. Right, could ushers, please, could you ask them to leave?
3: Could I say, by your leave, uh, that I understand the feelings of, the, of these victims and their families, and I am deeply sorry for the pain and the loss and the suffering of those victims so. and and their families and grateful though i am to the hundreds of thousands of healthcare care workers uh, and many other public servants people in all walks of life who helped to protect our country throughout a dreadful pandemic i do hope that this inquiry will help to get the answers to the very difficult questions that uh, those victims and those families are are rightly are asking.
1: So the reason I started with that particular clip there is because my sort of initial sort of reaction to some of this COVID inquiry, especially when it's a politician in the dock, um, is that, you know, I'm not sure how much I care, right? What we know at this point, we've known it for a very long time, is that Boris Johnson is not a particularly nice guy. His character was not the kind of character one would want for someone to be in charge in a life and death moment like a pandemic. Um, And, you know, he's not prime minister anymore. I don't think he's going to return as prime minister. So, you know, we spent so long talking about Boris Johnson's character and it, you know, I don't know if you need, you know, a massive inquiry to tell you the next time a pandemic comes around, try not to have an idiot in charge. You know, there are some very complicated lessons that we need to learn for the next pandemic. That, to me, doesn't seem to be one of them. But at the same time, Why sort of starting with that protest, and there were also sort of big protests outside the inquiry are important, is because there are a lot of people for whom, you know, yeah, they're not going to be surprised about Boris Johnson's character, but what they want is accountability. So they know that, you know, loved ones, I think it was sort of families of the bereaved, um, or bereaved families, sorry, who were sort of protesting there. They recognize, I don't say think, they recognize that sort of this man's irresponsibility led to the deaths of some of their loved ones. And they, you know, they aren't bored of hearing about Boris Johnson's character because for them, sort of having this written down in an inquiry is some form of justice. So I want to start with that because I want to sort of be aware, I'm being honest with you, be aware of sort of my own initial reaction, which is, oh my God, we're talking about Boris Johnson's character again. But then also recognizing that for some people, actually this is important and rightly so. Um, On that note, let's go on to the more sort of concrete questions and answers. So the first um, questions were about Evidence: the evidence that Boris Johnson had or hadn't provided to the inquiry. And the clip I'll show you now is how Boris Johnson explained the six-month gap for which he was unable to provide the inquiry with his WhatsApp messages. It's something to do with the app going down
3: and then uh, coming up again, um, but somehow... Uh, not automatically erasing all the things uh between that date when when it went down and the moment when it was last backed up so i i can't give you the technical explanation but that's the best i'm able to give.
1: there are two senses in which you know i'm actually it will surprise you somewhat sympathetic to boris johnson there first I delete stuff off my phone all the time and I don't know how to get it back. So I actually wiped six months off my phone this year because I thought I was turning off Find My iPhone. And in fact, I was returning to factory reset. So I lost every photo I'd taken between March and September. So I'm an idiot when it comes to technology. And Boris Johnson also strikes me as a bit of an idiot when when he talks about technology. I have seen people on Twitter say that, no, actually, if you are technically astute, you can work out how to get this back. So I don't Believe the guy, um but I don't find it completely implausible what he's saying either. the other reason I'm somewhat sympathetic is I would really hate my WhatsApps to be made public right and and that's not because there's anything on there I'm particularly like ashamed of, but because when speaking among friends even colleagues right you do often speak in a very you know in a way where if it's taken out of context can look really heartless and horrible but is actually you know just the way that people who know each other very well speak so I'm not as sort of outraged about this whole WhatsApp thing as many people are. Obviously, you saw my coverage over COVID. There are many things for which I am outraged at Boris Johnson about. Um, Let's go on to the questioning which went on to reasons for Britain's relatively late entry into a lockdown. Here, Boris Johnson was asked why mass events were allowed to go on even into mid-March.
3: Cheltenham Festival continued the week of the 10th. There was an Atletico Madrid match, yes, and mass gatherings, sporting events were not, in fact, shut yes. until the following week. Yes, and as a, a, um, with hindsight, uh, as a symbol of the of the government's earnestness, rather than just um, as a, a you know a, being guided by the science. Uh, we should perhaps have done that, and um, I agree with you. And no doubt that was in accordance with your own libertarian instincts. Well, at, at, all, at every stage, um, I was weighing the massive costs of what we were doing to people's psyches, to people's life chances, to, 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 um, to the whole... You know, it, when, when you talk about an economy uh you're talking about um people in all walks of life who suddenly can't get to do the thing that they need to do to 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 earn a living and um it's a it's a what we were obliged to, to do was very very destructive for for a, a lot of people who were least able to bear the costs
1: and, and, and least able to to uh, to manage it i think again in that situation actually everything he said there is reasonable there were real trade-offs the decision to say let's go into lockdown or let's close big social events you know it wasn't cost free at the same time i mean we were talking about it at the time weren't we everyone else was doing it um there was this bizarre pretense that what was going on in italy wouldn't happen in the uk for bizarre reasons oh we don't kiss each other when we when we meet each other We aren't quite as old as the Italians, and we don't live in multi generational families. There was a complete, I think, self delusion that we wouldn't be hit by what was hitting the rest of the world. Obviously, and we have seen people such as um, Neil Ferguson suggest that 20,000 extra people could have survived that third wave. Although, you do have to say that when it comes to excess deaths over the long term, over the whole period of, of COVID, Britain is pretty much in the middle. Now, you could say that's because. Of the the early rollout of the vaccine, and it could have been that we could have had much fewer if we had both um, gone into restrictions much sooner and then had a quick vaccine rollout. I mean, as I often say, um, the bit I think is unforgivable from boris Johnson is is what he did in autumn 2020. So in spring 2020, I think he was pretty poor, um, but he was sort of receiving scientific advice that you know wasn't always completely clear By autumn, he was told look, you're going to have to introduce some restrictions or we're going to have a catastrophe. He didn't. We had a catastrophe. Um, let's look at something that was particularly concerning, I think, from, from this inquiry. So they looked at Johnson's initial reaction to emerging evidence about long COVID. Now, these are Johnson's notes on the government's long COVID review. And he's written bollocks. Um, and he's written, this is Gulf War syndrome stuff. So the implication there being, it's all in people's heads. And here's what Johnson said about those notes in the inquiry.
3: The words that I scribbled in uh, the margins of submissions about uh, long COVID have obviously been now publicised, and I'm sure that they have caused a hurt and offence to a huge numbers of people who, who do indeed suffer from that syndrome. And i, I I regret very much uh, using that language and should have thought uh, about the the, uh, possibility of future a future publication.
1: I'm not upset about the language, right? I think using crude language in a private document, fine, whatever. I I don't really care about sort of like the, the civility of what someone says in, well, it's not complete private, is it, but relative private. I do think the complete dismissal there of the reality of long COVID was very worrying. Because, again, this wasn't when it had just first been mentioned in a newspaper, say. This was being written about in a report into long COVID from government scientists. So that didn't suggest that someone was taking this particularly seriously. Very interesting as well with long COVID. This has actually changed how we understand many chronic illnesses. So it's often the case that sort of chronic illnesses, chronic fatigue has often been dismissed as in people's heads because we haven't got a particularly good physiological explanation of why it happens. And I think, you know, the fact that long COVID is so widespread that while there are many different manifestations of it, you have some very consistent symptoms that has meant that people have said, actually, you know, post-viral fatigue, these very chronic illnesses, which exist after an infection you know, we can't just keep saying they in people's heads. So there's actually, you know, he he was a very flippant and, you know, he wasn't representative of mainstream scientific opinion when he was writing that, but it wasn't completely alien. Lots of people did sort of look at those sort of illnesses and say, oh, it's psychosomatic. And that was so unfair because it added trauma upon trauma. So there were many people who, you know, for, what well, for decades, right? We've had viruses forever. Post-viral fatigue, you have this sort of double injustice whereby one, it's incredibly difficult to go around your daily business, and your doctor can't really tell you exactly why. And then, two, many people are saying this is all in your head. You know, maybe the reason you're tired is just because you know you need to get some counselling. Maybe for some people that is the case, but clearly we now understand that for many people it is physiological, and you can't just talk them out of it. Um, Helena, um, as I say, they haven't got onto the part of you know the COVID story, which I think is you know most um, damning for Boris Johnson. Presumably that will be tomorrow. But I want your sort of thoughts on you know, the general sense that we're getting from both Boris Johnson, but also this COVID inquiry in, in general. To me, it does seem a little bit like, you know, it, it's all about seeing the character of politicians who are not even in government anymore. It would have seemed more relevant to me if Boris Johnson was still prime minister to be sort of raking him over the coals in terms of his character. But I'm not sure if sort of talking about all of this is helping us prepare for the next pandemic, or do you have a different impression?
2: I think that I have some sympathy with your point of view there. Uh, And I think a lot of it does feel like salacious gossip, but I, I don't think that just because they're not in government anymore, the scrutiny of the kind of attitudes these people have Uh, Isn't warranted. I think that is still warranted because you've got to remember these are still members of the Conservative Party who are inserted into these positions um, at the best of the people who are currently in government now. So I think that there is broad culpability amongst not just the Conservative Party but our broader political class as well. There needs to be scrutinised by looking at the way that these people talk to each other, the kind of opinions these people had, and the ways in which that something as serious as a pandemic was taken by some of the most powerful people in the country. And of of course, the most powerful person in the country, Boris Johnson himself, as he's being questioned today. Um, so there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about from what we've seen today in general, and then I've got some broader points as well. So I actually disagree with you upon the analysis around the start of the pandemic, right? So first of all, with regards to the comments about the economy, we've seen from some of the WhatsApp messages and the kind of language that's being used is that they were very happy, multiple members of the cabinet, Johnson included himself, were very happy to essentially sacrifice people's lives at the altar of the economy, which I don't think is the kind of thinking that even if we can't hold these people personally accountable for holding these opinions, I think that it's important that we understand this broader point of should the economy serve humanity or should humanity serve the economy and i think we finally have the real proof of what happens when the latter is the case and humanity serves the economy and that gets put first right in fact red line go up does not indeed equal world more gooder that's not indeed a, a, a heuristic that you can use anymore given the, what we know about what happens when that when that is what is the the driving force behind policy and when it comes to the actual start of the pandemic, I'm sure, I understand these things are difficult. It's difficult to understand exactly what the kind of thing you have to do is when you're especially your very first time Prime Minister, you're surrounded by people who are pretty green in terms of their, their history in government. And this is the first real pandemic that we've seen affect us since you know, Spanish flu. It's been a very, very long time on that. But I still I don't share a lot of the sympathies that you have when I have so many distinct thoughts and memories of what was happening at the time. So I was working in a call centre at the time when the pandemic first started. And I was really hot on the information on this. And I remember vividly, vividly remember being incredibly apprehensive, seeing stories coming out of Italy where people were literally sharing houses with the corpses of their loved ones because morticians were so overburdened, they couldn't remove the corpses in time. The army had to be brought in to be able to act as the reserve army of morticians. And quite frankly, I think that once you have this news, you have to act. And there were still weeks going on from when this was first announced until we actually had proper action, not just on lockdown. Because I think that... Whilst lockdown is something that we had to get into earlier anyway, and Jeremy Corbyn pointed that out during this pre-lockdown period. But I think the real crux is border control and how this wasn't used at the start of the pandemic. So you compare it to other islands. I think a good comparison would be places like New Zealand and even Australia, right? Australia, run by Scott Morrison, right? Scott Morrison, very much of the Boris Johnson mould. Even they, both they managed to create this level of border control where you had these these periods of isolation before going into the general population, where essentially we had immediately given up completely on any kind of containment strategy, right? So there's a difference between a containment Containment strategy and a mitigation strategy right at the start, where a containment is where you try and ensure the general population does not catch COVID more broadly. Whereas mitigation is once you admit that that's not something that you can do, you then have to be able to mitigate the spread. And we never had a containment strategy whatsoever. We just said, if you've come from Wuhan, make sure you get checked up. Weeks before, weeks after, we had already seen the kind of catastrophes that could be inflicted upon us given the scenes that were coming out of Italy. So I really think that this stands to a a kind of attitude towards both the economy and governance that a lot of the information that we have, both from the internal discussion and the policy outcomes, that is definitely worth having and is definitely worth scrutinizing. More broadly, though, about the attitude of our politicians towards what we've gone, what we've seen from the messages and their attitude during the inquiry as well. My overriding opinion and sense of the kind of attitude that we got from Boris Johnson is he looked like a child being scolded by a headmaster at school. It looked like somebody who'd never been told no in his entire life. And I think this is really and truly something that we've got out of the vast majority of the conservative ministers that we've had. And apart from potentially Michael Gove, even David Cameron and George Osborne, right? They were some of the first COVID inquiry, um, people to be scrutinised. And they had some of the most important things to say about the readiness of RNHS and the impact of austerity and the absolutely zero contrition they'd had throughout the entirety of this period. David Cameron's back in government now, seemed to have got off scot-free with how much damage he did that didn't prepare us for what was happening during the pandemic. And what this basically comes down to is a bunch of people who have this internal sense of blitz spirit who think that that can overcome actual, real material impacts of policy, thinking that the, the nation itself was invulnerable and they themselves would be invulnerable when it comes down to scrutiny. Because Boris Johnson was the one who who instigated the whole inquiry in the first place, not realising what the actual extent of the level of scrutiny would be. And these are people who have all gone through private school They've all come up through an incredibly privileged life, having never been told no, and have this attitude of being born to rule. And this level of scrutiny where he's like, well, I can't, well, my WhatsApp's might be taken. I'm not sure. I think having ac- people having access to those is something you would be wary of. But we've seen already the amount of which gets redacted for being either um, compromising or being irrelevant. So I really don't think that he has any excuse for this level to which that he can somehow obfuscate around the the lack of desire to give up information. Cause I just don't think he ever thought, both from the start of his political career until now, that he would ever face consequences for any of his actions.
1: Yeah. I, I, I agree with that about the character of Boris Johnson. I suppose maybe I'm maybe I'm just a bit bored of sort of like thinking about the character of Boris Johnson. But at the same time what I have to weigh against that and why I sort of showed that first clip of the protests um in um, the, the, the session, the evidence session is because just because I'm a bit bored about thinking of the character of Boris Johnson doesn't mean that other people aren't. And there might be many people who think Boris Johnson's character had a real impact on whether or not their loved ones lived or died. So I'm I'm not here to say it doesn't matter. I'm my sort of, I'm, I'm just being honest with you about sort of my initial reaction when I'm sort of hearing, this this dissection of of Boris Johnson's character which does seem to be what the lawyers um in the in the inquiry are, are doing to some degree interestingly i agree with you helena on the the point about border controls but in boris johnson's defence that was definitely one of the ones that sort of public health people it was it was very much a, a sort of um received wisdom among epidemiologists i think from what they're all saying publicly that border controls you know don't particularly work when trump did it everyone called him a reactionary right so I think they are going to play a much bigger role in any future pandemic, heaven forbid. Um, But retrospectively, I, I don't really think many people were sort of solidly demanding that from Boris Johnson and his libertarian instincts were sort of saying not to do that. Let's go to our next story. We're going to the Gaza War. Israel and Hamas are now fighting house-to-house battles throughout Gaza, with the Strip's hospitals reporting a surge in civilian casualties. The IDF is reported to have taken control of most of the Salah al-Din road. That's the main highway connecting northern and southern Gaza. And a focal point for the fighting is now Khan Yunis in the south. This morning, the IDF called on residents of the city to flee further south towards Rafah on the Egyptian border. Many of them are being displaced a second time, having already fled the north. According to the UN, more than 80% of Gazans have been forced to leave their homes. According to the Norwegian Refugee Council, the war on Gaza, quote, now ranks amongst the worst assaults on any civilian population in our time and age. So words don't get much stronger than that. But there seems no end in sight to Israel's bombardment. Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, gave this justification for the scale of the attack.
5: This war is a war that is not only between Israel and Hamas. It's a war that is intended really, truly to save Western civilization, to save the values of Western civilization. We are attacked by a jihadist network, an empire of evil emanating from Tehran with its forks in Lebanon with Hezbollah, with Hamas in Gaza, with the Houthis in Yemen. This empire is in Iraq, and this empire wants to conquer the entire Middle East. And if it weren't for us, Europe will be next and the United States follows. I remind all about 9-11 and, and thereafter, meaning there are extreme fundamentalist mm-hmm. w- uh, thoughts that wants all of us out. And that's what we are facing. And the world has to understand it. We didn't want this war, God forbid. We went through hell. But we have to defend our people and enable everybody to go back to the region and live in peace. That's what we are doing for the sake of the entire world.
1: Now, that is complete bullshit, right? There is no sense in which Hamas wants to come for the rest of the world, right? It's, it, it's not ISIS. ISIS did have sort of, to some degree, global ambitions. Hamas is a nationalist organisation that wants to free Palestine, right? It's also Islamist, but it it doesn't have those, those, those global ambitions. So that's just complete nonsense. Also, I saw a tweet about this I found interesting, which is, you know, when when Israel gets called a settler colonial country, they say, no, 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 we're not we're, only a minority of us are from European origin. Um, the the majority of the population of, of Israel is actually um from, from the Middle East. And then when they're talking to a different audience, they say, we are the outpost of the West and we are saving you from the barbarians. It's also, Very inconsistent, these two lines you're pushing out. You also might think the mass killing of civilians is a recipe for creating hatred of the West rather than eliminating it, especially when we're unconditionally supporting it. When I say we, the UK, the US, the West in general. And in the West Bank, which is not controlled by Hamas, the brutality of Israel's treatment of Palestinians has been starkly exposed again. Um, We should warn you, this next footage contains violent images that some might find disturbing. Filmed in the West Bank city of Hebron yesterday, it shows free men now confirmed to be Israeli soldiers. um, That's by the IDF who confirmed that. Surrounding a Palestinian man on his hands and knees. Witnesses say the soldiers demanded identification from the man, which he didn't have. The soldiers then shot him in the leg, leaving him writhing in agony on the ground. He is 34-year-old Tarek Abu Abed, so that's the person they shot. He suffers from a mental disability, something his brother said would be immediately obvious to anyone who met him. That, according to Israel's president, is of course how you defend Western civilization. Not everyone agrees, though. Speaking at a news conference, the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, said this about the situation in Palestine. My humanitarian colleagues have described the situation as apocalyptic. In these circumstances, there is a heightened risk of atrocity crimes. Measures need to be taken urgently, both by the parties concerned and by all states, particularly those with influence to prevent any such crimes. The international community needs to insist, with one voice, on a ceasefire immediately, on human rights and humanitarian grounds. Of course, politicians in the West disagree. Oh, no, we can't possibly have a ceasefire. That would freeze the conflict where it is. We need to let Netanyahu achieve his war aims, which, by the way, if you've read them, is to completely rid Gaza of Palestinians. It's not particularly subtle. Um, It isn't only international humanitarian agencies who are becoming increasingly critical of Israel's military strategy. Last night, released Israeli hostages and representatives of hostages' families met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the country's war cabinet. According to Haaretz, it didn't go too well for the government. Some of the attendees described the meeting as highly disrespectful, disorganized, and tense, with one telling the cabinet, quote, if that's how you run such a meeting, I don't know how you run the country. 138 hostages remain in Hamas captivity. One released woman responding to rumors that Israel intends to flood Hamas tunnels with seawater told Netanyahu this about her husband, who is still held by Hamas. He was taken to the tunnels, and you talk about washing the tunnels with seawater. You prioritize politics over the hostages. My husband hurt himself every day until he bled because the situation was hard for him to bear, and now he is alone. God knows in what conditions. Bring them all back. I saw Ari Zalmanovich dying next to me. There are no lives more important than others. Ari Zalmanovich was the oldest of the hostages taken by Hamas. Last month, Hamas said the 86-year-old died of a heart attack following Israeli shelling, but his family say he was murdered by, by Hamas. Um, another former hostage aired her concerns about Israel's relentless bombing of Gaza, saying this. What I see on TV scares me a lot. I see Israeli bombings there and you have no idea where the captives are. I was in a house surrounded by explosions. We slept in tunnels and we feared not Hamas, but Israel might kill us. And then it would have been said, Hamas killed you. So that's from a former hostage. Some former hostages also described the conditions they were kept in, underground, short of oxygen, and with tightly rationed food. Another former hostage who had nursed the more elderly Israelis in Hamas captivity described their situation like this. I left them when they were at a very bad mental state. They know they need to survive, but they're on the verge of losing hope. During our time there, we felt abandoned twice. Once on Saturday, so that's October the 7th, and again during every passing day without our release. Each passing day is a gamble with their lives. Their lives are in your hands. According to the report, Netanyahu told attendees that it wasn't possible to bring all the hostages home in one deal and said that reports of bombings near the hostages' locations, quote, pierced his heart. But some family members appear to have lost all faith in his government. One representative told Haaretz this it was very difficult to hear from the hostages' descriptions of what they were and are enduring. It is not only the abuse, suffering, and torment they undergo but also that the IDF airstrikes jeopardize their lives. Together with Netanyahu's statement that there's no proposal on the table to return everyone, it's impossible. Hamas is the one orchestrating this event. Besides putting the hostages at risk, Israel's bombing campaign also seems to be ineffective um, against Hamas, with one former hostage saying this, we are humans, they are monsters, they boast about everything they did at appalling levels, they sleep when bombs fall near nil- nearby, they keep sleeping, your bombs don't move them at all. Helena, I, I want to talk to you about the the hostages because it is, you know, when the, the first set were released and sort of spoke, not positively, obviously no one's speaking positively about being held hostage, but said, you know, th- they didn't treat us terribly. You know, obviously we didn't want to get taken hostage, but they didn't treat us terribly. We are also hearing lots of testimony of people who did say that they weren't treated well. So it, it does seem like a mixed bag in terms of how people were treated. Obviously, I'm not saying it's a mixed bag in terms of the experience. Being taken hostage is terrible, however well you get treated. But it does seem that, you know, different militants um, treated people in in different ways. And there's almost, you know, a a big row about that online. I think people sort of choosing hostages who had a good experience to say, oh, these Hamas guys, they're actually really um, pleasant and nice. And then people choosing the people who had the bad experiences to say, God, these are human animals. And it's, you know, probably a little bit more complicated than that.
2: I would absolutely agree with your analysis there. I think there is a a very mixed narrative that you get coming out of this. But again, at the end of the day, this is a military conflict. I guess military, military versus a a militant group. I guess, and there's going to be a certain level of differing opinions. I mean, there are moderates and there are hardliners within the Hamas politburos. There are plenty of different. different positions people would be able to take even just within the organisation themselves, within, within the Kassam Brigade and, and how they would treat hostages. Again, we have to understand as well that any good treatment that the hostages are going to be getting here are probably not necessarily to humanitarian grounds, but because it's necessary to treat these people in a manner with which that you can maintain them to still be there to use as leverage, which is what they're there for. But then again, you've got to also say, well, hang on a minute, there's also plenty of the story that we have already heard. Not that they've been reported on very widely, but we have heard them from Palestinian prisoners in administrative detention without trial being treated horrendously by the Israeli state. Right. So I mean, there's plenty of mistreatment of people on all sides. And in general, when it comes to the hostages, obviously we've just ended the humanitarian pause and we have reignited hostilities all over again, which has then put those hostages' lives at risk within the Gaza Strip, as has already been mentioned by the people who've already been freed, talking about the potentiality. And of course, the plenty of people already who've been taken hostage, who have been killed by IDF airstrikes. Again, it's been very clear that Netanyahu's main Strategy has not been one of freeing hostages, and has been of the advancement of the, of the military campaign and of the bombing campaign. This is why you know, the, what I believe, was a couple of weeks ago, we saw this big march from Jeru- from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which was demanding within Israel. More focus on freeing the hostages, and there could, there could have been further negotiations and and ex- and an attempt to extend the pause to ensure that further hostages on both sides could have been freed. Now, there hasn't been, there hasn't been in any way, um, there hasn't been moved forward by Netanyahu. He has not had the desire to do that, and returned back to the military campaign, and has therefore. Completely nixed continual discussion for hostage release and continually put the lives of hostages who are already in the Gaza Strip further in jeopardy. So, this shows you the kind of attitudes that you're getting. From people high up within the Israeli administration. Now, speaking of people high up in the Israeli administration, I thought I would touch on those comments from Isaac Herzog around Western civilization, which personally I found very chilling. I, you made a very good point to point out how this was essentially this civilization versus barbarian narrative, which has been part of the Hasbro narrative from the beginning. It's been very clear in terms of the way they want both Israeli officials and people who are allied to the actual st- the government of Israel. To continue this narrative has been part of their explanation of the reasons for why they do what they do, quote unquote, that there is, a, there is a dichotomy here between the Western-aligned civilization of Israel and the non-Western-aligned barbarians of the Palestinians. And that has been used as a pretext for not caring about the lives as they are put in jeopardy within this military campaign as tens of thousands of innocent civilians have now died very similar to 9-11. As Isaac Herzog even points out, he's not even hiding that this similar narrative of you're either with us or you're with that, or you're with the terrorists, which is used essentially as a smokescreen for continual violations of international humanitarian law, continual war crimes. Again, forced transfer is still a war crime. People just continually forget that this continual forced transfer of individuals within the Gaza Strip, is that is that's still a war crime. That's not changed in the last however many weeks. And this use of the defense of Western civilization, this bulwark in the Middle East, this outpost which uses a bulwark against the the oncoming barbarian horde, that is deliberately that is deliberately pandering to a narrative that's been driven by the far right within Europe, They're at the tide of Islamists coming from the East. That is a, a narrative you see across the far right in Europe, no matter which country that you go to, which is underpinned by a lot of their kind of cultural Marxism scaremongering, which ironically, the far right in Europe will then blame in an anti manner. Jewish intellectuals within this culture Marxism conspiracy theory for being the people who import people from the East. And then on top of that, Their strategy, otherwise, for any potential refugees, as we've heard, is to try and disperse Palestinian refugees amongst European countries. So it doesn't even work to say, "Oh, well, they're going to come for you next," when they literally are part of their strategy. Want these potential refugees who they say are in league with Hamas, because they've been very clear in wanting to not differentiate between Hamas militants and the civilians of Gaza. Those refugees will end up going to European countries. So their own narrative doesn't work. I'd like to finally end this bit by talking about the reason why they're. Ramping up this rhetoric is because Netanyahu, as been reporting the Financial Times today, realizes he's losing the consent to engage in what he's engaging in within Western countries. He's even said that all of the protests that we're seeing against the war in Gaza is losing Netanyahu's support from Western leaders, right? Blinken, anti-Blinken, it may seem something small about this new strat this new policy around settlers from the West Bank not being returned to the United States, right? This may seem small, but given that everything Israel has done has been given carte blanche to be able to do so by the United States government and the US State Department for the last half a century, this is the first time we've seen real pushback on the nature of what's being engaged in by Israel, both in the West Bank, West Bank in Gaza. And that's why it's super important that we keep up pressure in the UK and in the US. We continue to turn out in protest. We continue to withhold potential electoral support from candidates who continue the support of the ethnic cleansing of the Gaza Strip. Because the more we push back, it's been cleared now by Netanyahu that we can we can actually have substantial change in the way in which our governments allow the carte blanche to continue, and so that's the best message I can come up with uh, in response to this: that we need to keep up the pressure on our own governments to ensure this stops.
1: I think those travel restrictions imposed, so that the United States has imposed travel restrictions on some settler leaders, and to me, this is just such a. You know, the reason the settlers are able to do what they do is because they are backed by the Israeli government. Like, there's there's no point in in putting some pressure on the people who are sort of doing the Israeli government's dirty work. Put the pressure on the actual Israeli government, right? I, I don't. How much do those settler leaders care if they're going to be able to go to the United States? I don't think they're going to stop being settlers because of that, right? So you need to sanction the Israeli government. It's the same. I think this about people who just boycott settlement goods, right? There are only settlement goods because Israel proper, within nineteen sixty seven borders, is enabling those settlements to exist. So it, it just seems a little bit silly to me to sort of say, oh, we're going we're gonna to only boycott the very worst bits, but the very worst bits are enabled by the main bit. Let's go to our next story, which is a very sensitive one. It's become a pattern. Each time Israel steps up its bombing campaign against Gaza, it spreads a new talking point about Hamas' brutality to justify or distract from its actions. Early in the war, these claims concerned the killing of civilians by Hamas, which certainly did happen, But they also included claims about the sadistic and ritualistic murder of babies, which didn't happen. The latter claims were used to say Hamas is the same as ISIS, but those weren't true. One baby in total was killed on October the 7th, which is bad enough, of course, but contrary to a claim repeated by the literal President of the United States, the baby was not beheaded. Israel is once again now stepping up its bombing campaign against Gaza, and now a new set of allegations are gaining prominence. They involve allegations of sexual assault. And once again, it's become difficult to separate claims which are well-evidenced and likely to be true and those that aren't. Let's start by talking you through some of the most prominent claims. On the front page of the Sunday Times this weekend was this story. I saw Hamas rape women before killing them, says Massacre Survivor. That article included very gruesome testimony and I should warn you, it's graphic and distressing. Speaking to the Sunday Times is a 39-year-old man named Yoni Sadon, a survivor from the Nova Music Festival. So he said this, I saw this beautiful woman with the face of an angel and eight or 10 of the fighters beating and raping her. She was screaming, stop it already. I'm going to die anyway from what you were doing. Just kill me. When they finished, they were laughing and the last one shot her in the head. He then says, the horror did not end there. Hiding in the bushes, he saw two more Hamas fighters. They had caught a young woman near a car and she was fighting back, not allowing them to strip her. They threw her to the ground, and one of the terrorists took a shovel and beheaded her. And her head rolled along the ground. I see that head too. Now that's you know incredibly graphic testimony. All right, it's sort of along the lines of all sort of the sadistic things we were hearing about when it came to how they sort of acted in the in the kibbutzes. How should we think about this? We will go on to discuss that. Um, it followed a widely shared article by Heret's English. Late last week, which said this: the scope of Hamas's campaign of rape against Israeli women is revealed. Testimony after testimony, and then uh, this important point: the aggregation of evidence collected and um, by Dr. Kuchov El Kayam Levy and her Civil Commission presents a horrifying picture that leaves no room for doubt. On October the seventh, Hamas terrorists systematically carried out acts of rape and sexual abuse. So, they use this phrase: "leaves no room for doubt," and then says systematically carried out acts of rape and sexual abuse. So a very specific claim. And we'll look a bit more into that Haret's piece in a moment first, though. Um, let's take a look at some of the politics around all of this, because the stories, these stories, have coincided with protests against organizations who are accused of not taking these alleged crimes seriously enough. And the United Nations in particular has been in the firing line.
0: U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, one of many voices, speaking at a special session at the U.N. called Here Are Voices, Sexual and Gender-Based Violence in the October 7th Hamas Terror Attack.
6: The United Nations must denounce Hamas as a terrorist organization that uses rape as a weapon of war.
0: Before the session, hundreds rallied across from the UN. Yarash Iran's 24 year old cousin, Danielle Waldman was murdered at the Nova music festival.
5: In nearly two months, there's not been a word and we've decided that it's time to show support. The women that have been killed, they cannot speak for themselves. The rally
0: comes after late last week, the UN secretary general and the organization UN Women released statements on the matter. Last Wednesday, the U.N. Secretary General posted the abhorrent attacks of terror by Hamas must be vigorously investigated and prosecuted. Then late Friday night, U.N. women said in part, we unequivocally condemn the brutal attacks by Hamas, we are alarmed by the numerous accounts of gender-based atrocities. This is why we have called for all accounts to be duly investigated and prosecuted.
5: After eight weeks, the UN women uh, put a few, like one paragraph in a whole message in the middle, like remarking, like just saying that there was this such a thing and, and acknowledging it, but it's way too little and too late and we expect much more.
1: that's sort of a campaign against the civil society or a campaign against the UN, sorry, by civil society groups who are concerned that they haven't taken this seriously enough or haven't commented specifically or explicitly enough. And politicians have also got involved. Hillary Clinton released this video on Monday.
0: As you well know, many women and girls were attacked brutally by Hamas on October 7th. And they have testified to the gender-based violence that they both experienced and witnessed As a global community, we must respond to weaponized sexual violence, wherever it happens, with absolute condemnation.
1: Clinton went on to say, quote, it is outrageous that some who claim to stand for justice are closing their eyes and their hearts to the victims of Hamas. So sort of taking a similar attack line at people who aren't saying the same thing as her, essentially. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu has taken a similar line.
0: You've also heard about <laughs> sexual abuse
7: <inaudible>
0: and some vicious
7: <inaudible> rapes.
0: But I must say <inaudible> that until
7: just a few days ago,
0: I haven't heard anything <inaudible> from human rights organizations. <inaudible> I didn't hear women's organizations. I didn't hear anything from women organizations in the
7: U.S.
0: I did not <inaudible> hear their <inaudible> outcry. So I say to them, where are you? Did you remain silent because these are Jewish women I would like to say this in a language I say that everybody to the women's understands rights
7: organizations to the human rights organizations you've heard of the rape of Israeli women horrible atrocities sexual mutilation where the hell are you I expect all civilized leaders, governments, nations to speak up against this atrocity.
1: So what is actually going on here? Well, it seems obvious this argument is being coordinated to justify the indiscriminate bombing of Gazans who had nothing to do with the October the 7th attack. So that's, of course, appalling in and of itself. But that doesn't mean the claims themselves aren't true. And as I said earlier, the testimony I read out at the start of this segment describes acts which are beyond appalling— but I have also found some of the most viral reporting on this story unconvincing. The Haaretz article I showed you earlier was shared by a number of famous journalists like Jake Tapper from CNN. And Tapper repeated the headline claim that Hamas' campaign of rape against Israeli women has been revealed testimony after testimony. Now, I read that article. It's quite long. And it's quite strange for this reason. It doesn't actually contain any testimony. Instead, it was a profile of a lawyer, Dr. Kochav El-Kayyam Levy, who was set up a commission into sexual violence by Hamas. Now, El-Kayyam Levy is currently an academic, but previously has had a posting working for the Israel, Israeli Attorney General's office. Now, of that commission, Harets write this, They are assembling one account after another, one piece of evidence after another, and gradually putting together all the pieces of the puzzle. The aggregation of the evidence presents a horrifying picture that leaves no room for doubt under cover of the massacre. Hamas carried out a campaign of rape and sexual abuse at many of the communities adjacent to the Gaza Strip that it attacked. So this was odd to me because the widely shared headline suggested Haaretz had heard this testimony themselves and that it left no room for doubt. But instead, they are reporting on the testimony someone else says they have heard. And in fact, later on in the article, el Levy says that her commission hasn't directly heard any testimony. So they are instead collecting testimony collected by other people, which makes this third-hand evidence, right? So not necessarily the strongest evidence. What's also odd in the article is el Kayam Levy's attitude to evidence itself. So she calls the group UN Women Anti-Semitic for accusing Israel of genocide while ignoring allegations of mass rape, and then says this, when a woman is raped, the discourse immediately revolves around evidentiary questions. Is there or is there not evidence of rape? Doubt is cast on the woman, her reliability is questioned, and a question mark is posed as to whether it did or did not happen. This casting of doubt is now directed against us at the collective level. She goes on. Questions are asked like, is there or isn't there semen? Was there or wasn't there a rape kit? Those same female jurists with international reputations who are conducting this discussion apparently do not have a basic understanding of international law. International law does not talk the language of the individual case. My call to them is to look beyond those denial mechanisms. You are facing a bunch of respected women and telling them that shocking crimes were committed here. Am I the one who needs to provide the evidence for the terrorist deeds? What kind of travesty is it that they are imposing the burden of proof on me? She's running this commission. The article is based on her claims, but then she seems kind of annoyed that other people want to see evidence. Now, as I said, obviously, evidence shouldn't be available to everyone, but to the specific groups who they are asking to sort of condemn things seems reasonable for some to be provided. And I have to say, I feel especially sorry for the UN in all of this. They've been constantly accused of being blind to the reality of what happened on October the 7th. They've been called anti-Semitic. They've been told they don't care about Jewish women because they're Jewish. But to me, it seems more like they want a chance to assess what actually happened. Now, this is from a BBC report earlier in the week. An ongoing UN commission of inquiry investigating alleged war crimes on both sides of the Israel-Hamas conflict will include a focus on sexual violence carried out during the attacks on the 7th of October. However, Israel has so far not cooperated with the commission, viewing it as biased. Nabi Paley, who chairs the inquiry, said if Tel Aviv did not want to cooperate, her team could still take evidence from survivors and witnesses outside the country. All they have to do is let us in talking about Israel, she told the BBC, adding that survivors of the attack should be able to get a UN hearing. Ms Paley also rejected claims that the UN delayed acknowledging that sexual violence had taken place during Hamas's attacks and said every effort was being made as part of her team's investigations. So to me, it seems very unfair to demand an international body condemn an atrocity. Why haven't you condemned this before giving them any chance at all to independently assess that it happened, right? They're, they're saying, we want to be let in, we want to have some access, we want to be part of this investigatory process, if you want us to to make these, these big statements and these big condemnations. And Israel is saying, well, because you didn't make the statement, you were therefore biased, and therefore we're not going to let you be involved in the investigation. So there's a bit of a circular logic there, which seems to be putting them in a very difficult position. This round of accusations has also had uh, another familiar element when it comes to this war. Video and photographic evidence of rape, in this case, is constantly alluded to, but it is rarely seen or verified by journalists themselves. Again, I'm not saying this should be made public. I'm not saying anyone should be sending this, you know, the, the Israelis should be sending this to Navarra Media, but you could send it to Reuters. You could send it to Associated Press. Um, last night, the BBC, probably one of the, you know, the most high-profile high um, news programs in this country at 10. So the BBC News at 10 led with this report. It contains um, very graphic testimony you might find distressing.
4: Out of the chaos and mass trauma of the Hamas attacks, new stories are starting to emerge of rape and sexual assault, including graphic testimony from an eyewitness interviewed by police. They bent her over, and I realised they were raping her, one by one. Then she was passed to another man in uniform. She was still alive when she was being raped. He shot her in the head while he was still raping her. He didn't even lift his pants. They cut off her breast and played with it on the street. The scale of sexual violence here isn't clear. Bodies were mutilated and survivors few. And police admit they're facing a lack of forensic evidence from the site. You can still hear the Israeli bombardment of Gaza and see vast clouds of black smoke hanging over the Gaza Strip. But in the days following the attack, this site was an active combat zone. It was a big enough challenge to collect the bodies, let alone early forensic evidence of sexual crimes. Videos shot by Hamas during the attacks, an early warning. A large bloodstain on the trousers of one woman captive female bodies piled on trucks, naked or semi-clothed. Body collectors describe piles of women's bodies, naked from the waist down, some photographed with their legs splayed, often mutilated or burnt. You see the way that it's burnt. And those who witness sexual attacks have
0: struggled with what they saw. I spoke with girls that are now, at least three girls, that are now hospitalized for a very hard psychiatric uh, situation because of the rapes they watched. They pretended to be dead and they watched it and they heard everything from the side. Some of them want to kill themselves, some some can't deal with it.
1: Now the testimony at the start that was incredibly distressing, um, the implication of the blurred images to me is, is somewhat less clear, but I do think there was some pretty key context the BBC missed out in that last section of the clip we showed you. So the on-screen label pointed out that Meghalan worked for the Israeli government. But she was spoken to pretty much like a neutral expert. And she most certainly isn't. So just seven months ago, Netanyahu caused controversy when he nominated Meghalan to be Israel's top diplomat in Israel. It was controversial because she is a self-proclaimed racist. So that Guardian article of which we just showed you the headline, it says this. Golan made a political name for herself by denouncing African refugees in Israel, calling them Muslim infiltrators, criminals, and rapists. She said many have AIDS, suggesting they were spreading HIV by working as waiters and demanded they be expelled from the country. If I am a racist for wanting to defend my country and for wanting to protect my basic rights and security, then I'm a proud racist. She said at a political rally in 2013 as a member of the far-right Jewish Power Party, a descendant of the Kark Party that was outlawed under Israeli anti-terrorism laws. And Golan's appointment was ultimately deemed too controversial. So instead of a diplomatic job, she was made a minister for women's um, equality or women's empowerment. Um, I found that interesting that there was no political background given there, even though whenever now the BBC says the death toll in Gaza, they have to say the Hamas run health ministry to sort of say, this is political information, which might not be completely true, then they've got this far right Israeli minister who's talked to like she's just a neutral expert. I found that somewhat problematic. As you can probably tell, I don't know what to think about this topic in general. I don't want to make any particularly strong claims. I don't think I have enough expertise in this. What's clear is that the allegations being made are appalling, but that some of the reporting around this topic doesn't seem to be of the highest quality. So it's it's all incredibly sensitive. And earlier today, I spoke to someone who I hoped would help me make sense of it. Heidi Matthews is assistant professor of law at York University in Canada and specializes in international law, political violence, and gender. I began by asking her how she assesses the claims about systematic sex crimes committed by Hamas.
6: The general public doesn't actually really have access to any accounts, um, or direct evidence uh, ourselves, right? And I think that's one of the things that folks are finding a little bit frustrating about some of the claims being made in the media right now. What we do have though, uh, uh, is a set of information um, given to us uh, uh, by what's called a civil commission um, that's been organized um, by a number of academics and researchers working in the Israeli context Um, who are working to sort of collate and document for the purpose of creating a public database um, various kinds of evidence. Uh, That evidence, according to the commissioners, uh, uh, involves testimonies, involves evidence um, being turned over or revealed to them uh, by Israeli police investigative units, also by first responders, news reports, video um, and audio clips. So it's quite a wide Range of evidence, Um, you know, and beyond what the public has sort of um, been repeatedly invited to view uh, in terms of video evidence, we don't really have access to the full record. I mean, that's not like strange in and of itself. Um, So I I will say this: the the bottom line is essentially that there's a a bunch of evidence being put together by a civil commission in Israel that is distinct from work that's being done by, for example, the Independent International Commission of Inquiry on the Occupied Palestinian Territory, um, including East Jerusalem and Israel. And so um, on the one hand, we have sort of um, an Israeli outfit, a non-governmental outfit, yet an Israeli outfit sort of undertaking this work. And on the other hand, we have an Independent International Commission that's been set up and mandated Um, by the UN to do this work, but has not received the sort of cooperation from Israel that would actually be necessary to carry out fulsome, um, independent investigation. Um, The only other thing I would say right there is that um, I have no doubt personally that acts of sexual violence were indeed committed by Hamas militants and perhaps militants um, of other groups as well. I think that basic fact is not something that should be obscured in this discussion, but there are important uh, other discussions to be had around who's doing the investigating, when the information comes out um, and the purposes to which that information is then put politically in other ways.
1: So one of the things I've found, I suppose a bit confusing in in this conflict, and I imagine you've followed stories such as this more than I have, is the extent to which the evidence we're often, we're often told about evidence, let's say, and I'm not really expecting, you know, us at Navarra Media to get sent direct evidence or for viewers at home to be shown this evidence. But you often have this construction where a journalist is talking to someone who is telling them about evidence that they've seen or testimonies that they've been told about. And it seems that we're often getting into sort of second-hand or third-hand accounts. And and there are some first-hand accounts. We have to be you know absolutely clear about that. In the Sunday Times, I had um, a, a gentleman who was a survivor at the 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 Nova Festival who was describing some Know, what, what sound like completely at- atrocious moments. At the same time, in this conflict up to now, there have been firsthand accounts that have turned out to be wrong. Um, so many of the sort of most salacious headlines when it came to sort of the ritualistic murder of, of babies came from first responders, right? And I, I don't want to say anyone is making stuff up, right? But it does seem that relying on the testimony of people who have just come out of an incredibly traumatic event or relying on the testimony of, say, one person that does seem a little bit risky journalistically.
6: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. And one of the first examples of this with respect to um, the discrete question of sexual violence, I think, is with Joe Biden himself, right, who way back on October 10th um, he, he talked about uh, uh, the rape and mutilation of women on October 7th, um, which, you know, I think was some days before the IDF itself. Um, came out and confirmed that sexual violence had had in fact taken place, right? And so there's been quite a bit of slippage um, in terms of what folks are willing to say like politically. And then I think that easily slips into the journalistic sphere as well, right? Um, I've done a lot of work and research in my career around uh, the way in which we've shifted our attitudes to sexual violence claims in the wake of the so-called Me Too movement something that I've been long been critical of so for five or six years now um is the way in which this sort of um this mantra of believe women uh uh, has really come to sort of occupy center stage and make it really difficult for those of us who are interested in well done uh truthful accurate non-propagandist reports around um gender-based and sexual violence to get a handle on what's going on. And so what we see right now is that any attempt journalistically to even ask for clarification around a certain piece of evidence or maybe ask for corroboration or anything that would kind of, you know, um, enhance the reliability or the credibility of that piece of information is then you know, very quickly met with the response that, well, you know, that's anti-Semitic. There's a hashtag that's going around um, that says, you know, Me Too, unless you're a Jew, I believe. So really um, kind of crass ways that pull on um, some of the attitudes that we've, uh, you know, moved into with the Me Too movement over the last year's
1: another thing i'm i'm not that sure about and i know lots of people have sort of had had questions about is what evidence it is normal to have in a situation such as this so you know the, the fact that there are no survivors giving testimony you know, there is an, an obvious explanation for that a, a grim explanation which is that people who suffered sexual violence were killed you know in, in the allegations which are being made um, i'm not in a position to, to to say either way there are other uh, sort of gaps in the evidence which seem like they do require a bit more explanation. So as far as I understand, Israel didn't take any forensic evidence from bodies of sexual violence. And they're saying that's because, you know, they were completely overwhelmed by the numbers. Everyone working here was volunteers. Um, Is that usual? Is that sort of an understandable and persuasive sort of explanation as to why that forensic evidence doesn't exist?
6: Yeah, so with the caveat that kind of forensics are not my personal area of expertise i will say that within the realm of international criminal law prosecution and adjudication and which i am very familiar with um, there are sorts of lots of times where crimes are being prosecuted years and years and years after the fact and where the kinds of evidence that you know we might want to Um, traditionally receive in a domestic context. So if you're thinking about, um, you know, physical evidence along the lines of a rape kit, for example, you know, that kind of a thing is not going to be available simply, you know, based on the passage of time on the one hand, but also um, based on the resources available. So if you look at, for example, the International Criminal Court, So many of the prosecutions there are taking place on the African continent with respect to situations in the African continent where there just aren't um, necessarily the kind of resources necessary to conduct that kind of forensic investigation. Now, you know, for Israelis themselves, I think in particular, they might want to have very different sort of standards with respect to the level of investigation that their own government is going to conduct. Uh, regarding crimes committed on Israeli soil. And I think part of what's really interesting when we might, might, you know, perceive some deficits uh, in terms of uh, uh, Israeli police and military investigation uh, uh, on the ground um, is that those deficits are taking place in the context of Israeli refusal to participate with internationally mandated procedures. Right, including the commission, international commission I've already um, mentioned and also um, the international criminal court uh, and its prosecutor as well. So essentially we have a situation where Israel is saying we're going to go this alone. We're going to determine the evidence um, and what should be done with it. We're going to determine what constitutes a crime. Um, What doesn't, and what's going to be done about it, and we actually don't want the the input of the international community. And the sort of really fascinating double speak that's happening there is that Israel is doing that at the same time that it's crying out for international attention, crying out for UN Women and CEDAW and other international organizations dedicated to the advancement of women and girls um, to say more and do more around the question of sexual violence on October seventh, and yet. The government is unwilling to adequately uh, uh, cooperate with the UN and is also calling uh, the UN sort of defunct uh, uh, and you know ineffective. On the other hand, so there's this really interesting double speak happening there.
1: I know you sort of work on on two related issues, which lots of people sort of see as as in conflict. And I've seen you've got into a lot of trouble with lots of very famous Americans over the past 24 hours about this. But you both sort of study and take very seriously. Rape used as a weapon of war and sexual violence in conflict, and you take very seriously how allegations of sexual violence are used to justify atrocities. So, sexual violence as part of atrocities, and how sexual violence is used to justify atrocities. Um, obviously, that's you know uh, an intersection which is very sensitive to talk about. How have you sort of kept those two thoughts in your head when it comes to what's happening? Um, in this current Israel-Gaza, Israel-Palestine, Gaza war, this current conflict?
6: For me, it's 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 a natural impulse to take um, what I call sort of methodologically critical legal studies um, and sort of apply that to what we're looking at in the world, right? And what that, you know, it's not, I'm not trying to be jargonistic, <laughs> jargonistic here, I'm just trying to say that um, it's really important to both kind of acknowledge, like, the physical reality of what's in front of us, and be very, very attentive at the same time, always at the same time. In fact, to the way in which um, those realities of oppression, of atrocity, of authoritarianism, you know, abuse, etc., all of the, the narratives we tell, especially around legal accountability, for example, about those events, are always already embedded. Uh, in power structures. Right. And so who gets to tell the story, the frame in which the story is told, and then the ask that's made of the public, um, including the public coffers, is always done by those, you know, holding the power, as it were. And so really what I try to do is to look at both of those things at the same time and to ask, you know, when we talk about defending humanity or standing up for human rights or doing what's good in the world. You know, we all wanna do that. At least I increasingly question that, but I I still hold like a glimmer of hope that we're all, you know, essentially dedicated to living the best lives we can and then ensuring that for as many people on the planet um, as well, you know. But to be able to do that, we need to be attentive to the distribution of power and, and all too often legal categories, especially and including around violations of the law of war, for example, international humanitarian law. Those um, arguments and allegations are made with a view to achieving a different, uh, a different kind of outcome than just kind of justice simpliciter, right? The outcome that's sought to be achieved is gaining greater power.
1: That was Heidi Matthews speaking to me earlier today. Um, as we've been live, Robert Jenrick, immigration minister, has resigned. Um, We don't really have time to go into detail about that now. Um, I'm sure it will be a topic for tomorrow's Novara Live. The Tories getting themselves into a pickle over immigration. Um, For now, thank you, Helena, for joining me tonight.
2: Yeah, it looks like it's going to be a fun evening of uh, grabbing the popcorn and watching Rishi Sunak's Cabinet Revolt yet again. I look forward to it. Thank you very much, as always. It's a pleasure to be
1: here. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, as always. It does get a little bit repetitive or getting out the popcorn to watch a Tory government collapse. We've seen it a few times now. Seems a bit like a rerun. Um, thank you, of course, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navarromedia.com slash support.